The following message was given by Rayshawn Graves on Sunday, April 23rd at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Uh, verses 36 through 43. That's where we'll be at today. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's some on the tray tables behind each section. Uh, if you don't own one, consider it our gift to you. Uh, again, we're in Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 43. Uh, I'm Ray Sean, and I'll be uh, preaching today and encouraging us with God's Word. And so uh, I'll just go ahead and start reading that, Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 43. Uh, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll just go ahead and, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, it says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Let me go ahead and pray for us before we uh, jump into this. And we're going to take today and just talk a little bit about the implications of the resurrection. The implications of the resurrection upon God's people in, in our daily lives. And so let's take a moment to pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for gathering us here. Uh, thank you for your good news, your gospel, uh, that when uh, the bad news was we were, we were your enemies, we were weak, we were helpless, the good news is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we thank you for this and we rejoice in it. We thank you that you raised him up three days later for our justification so that we can have acceptance before you and be declared righteous, so that we can have joy. So, Lord, we thank you for this time. Help us to, to focus on your words and to be encouraged by them, uh, to help, help us make application of your words to our lives. I ask that you would speak and not me, that your thoughts would go forth and not my own. We thank you for these things. Help us to put away any distractions. Help us to set aside all the, the different things that we've uh, tried to pursue for hope this week, this month. And help us to, to hear your words and, and see the sufficiency and the joy and the peace and the, the hope that is found in them. Again, we thank you that, you that you rose on the third day, Jesus. And we celebrate that. Help us to make application of it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, uh, as you know, it is the week after Easter. Uh, and historically in the liturgy of the church, it's been called Low Sunday. And I'm sure you can probably guess why it's called that. Uh, if Easter was the Super Bowl, then this is the Monday that everybody calls out sick on. If Easter were the dunk contest, I'm a basketball fan, then this Sunday is the guy who goes after Vince Carter. Nobody remembers it. If Easter is like the ladies' night out or the shopping trip, then this Sunday is the day after when you wake up late, you put on your regular clothes, and you don't really want to talk to anybody. We all know what this like. This, this post-Easter is... It's like the days after Christmas. The buyer's remorse starts to settle in, the unpaid bills, you still start to notice them, reality kicks back in, and you're left trying to figure out what's next. The music isn't like it was a week ago. The sermon's probably going to be forgettable. I hope not. 
You put away the cute dresses and the cool clothes, and, and now you're back in jeans again. And it, look, it's, it's even rainy outside. It's not even like the Easter weather last week. So post-Easter, it's, it's low Sunday, what they've called it in the history of the church. And maybe it's because we've experienced the, the, the high or the peak of Christianity, the sadness of Good Friday, the joy of Easter Sunday. And now we're, again, just wondering what's next. Well, Low Sunday is actually called Low Sunday because it points to the disposition of the disciples just after Jesus' death. They laid low. And this wasn't just because they were all hiding, locked in a room somewhere in fear of their lives. They were also experiencing a spiritual low and an emotional low. It had been three days since, uh, since Jesus had been crucified. And now there's been some buzz going around about Jesus being resurrected. But what these men really wanted to know as they're sitting there in this room, isolated, to themselves, in fear, what, they, what they're asking themselves in this moment is this famous post-Easter question. What's next? What's, what's, what, what happens now? And so the point I really want to emphasize today on this low Sunday is, is this, that there is a what now. There is an answer to the so what when it comes to the resurrection. There's a what now for the disciples here in this moment, but there's also a a what now implication for us 2,000 years later. So Jesus being raised from death was was far more than just the climax or the conclusion of his ministry here on earth. It's, It's more than just an isolated event that we commemorate because of its uniqueness. It matters significantly for our lives, both now and in our for our future. It can become easy for us as God's people to celebrate the event of the resurrection, to think about it, to sing about it, to rejoice in it on Easter Sundays and even all throughout the year, but actually not be impacted by what God has for us in the resurrection in our daily lives, the results of what God gives us through it. Jesus, he even said that it was possible to hear the words of someone who had been risen from the dead and and still not believe, and so we don't want that to be us. We want to understand what God desires for us through the resurrection and what God desires to accomplish in his people through raising Jesus from the dead. And so it's like Paul prays in the book of Ephesians. He says that that we can know the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And so, yes, there is a deep connection There's a deep connection between the power displayed and God raising Jesus from the dead. There's a deep connection from the power displayed at the empty tomb and God's purpose in our lives presently. And so this morning, there are an innumerable amount of implications that we could take from the resurrection. And I don't have time to cover all of them. I mean, this is the hope of the Christian life that we we continue to dig deep and, and see these things all throughout the scriptures, as Jesus says in the next passage, where he opens the eyes of the disciples to see God's work of redemption through him. And I encourage you all to, to be doing that in your, in your daily private worship, in your reading of the Bible. But today we're only going to focus on two of these implications that we see in this passage. And so from this text, we're going to see uh, how the resurrection gives us a saving peace and a strengthening presence. A saving peace and a strengthening presence. And so look at verse 36. It says, as they were talking about these things, well, what things? 
Being days after the crucifixion of Jesus, Luke now puts this part of the passage, he puts it here as the third evidence or account of Jesus' resurrection. The first evidence is found in verses 1 through 12 when Mary and the woman from Galilee, they go to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body with spices. They were confronted with angels who told them Jesus wasn't there anymore, that he had risen. They then proceed to tell the disciples about the resurrection only to be written off by them in disbelief. The second evidence is when Jesus himself uh, appears to two men on the road to Emmaus. He, he sort of disguises and hides himself. He keeps them from recognizing who he is as he talks with them. He eats a meal with them, and then he vanishes from their sight. And so these men as well, they went to the 11 disciples. They told them of their experience. And so this has become the centerpiece of what has been going on with the disciples' conversation. This has been what they've been talking about ever since Jesus was crucified. So what we see happens next, it comes as a total shock to the disciples. I don't know if you've ever been a part of the the cultural experience known as the barbershop, maybe a hair salon or something like that. But if not, let me just bring you into it for a minute. The barbershop is the place where uh, nothing is off limits in conversation. A lot of people talk a whole, about a whole lot of things in the barbershop. Current events get interpreted and misinterpreted. Rumors get started. They get debunked. They get confirmed. Sports heroes, a topic often brought up in the barbershop, they either get overblown or completely minimized, no matter how great they might be. In the barbershop, debates happen. Voices get raised. Laughter ensues. And in silence, it can either affirm or, or reject or refute. And so I imagine the conversations in this room amongst the disciples being, being similar in tone and similar in nature as, as sort of the barbershop conversations. Sure, there's a, a sadness that's prevailing among them as they're talking about these things, but it's, it's possible that they're discussing the validity of Mary's account and Mary's uh, testimony about the resurrection, saying, listen, do, do y'all really think that happened like that? I know, she's, I know she's sincere, I know she's genuine, or, or maybe they're talking about the details of Cleopas' story. Like, listen, I, I like Cleopas, he's a good dude, but I, I just don't know if what he's saying really happened in that way. Maybe the disciples are looking at one another, sort of bouncing the question off one another, saying, listen, look, if Jesus has really been resurrected, if he's really alive, then why do all these people keep seeing him? We're his closest followers, why hasn't he shown himself to us yet? And then suddenly, suddenly into the room stands Jesus, verse 37. And now it's like the celebrity or the athlete that everybody's been talking trash about or praising or overrating or underrating walks into the middle of the barbershop conversation. And now it's like that moment where you don't know if if you should just cut your tongue out or run around the room in excitement. Jesus stands there among them. He appears before them and says, peace to you. Peace to you. Now on the surface, this looks like a a, a general greeting. Maybe just a, hey guys, I hope all is well. How you guys doing? But it's more than that. First off, just as an initial, initial greeting to them, as initial words to them, this wasn't the greeting that they deserved. What they deserved was this, you guys should be ashamed of yourselves. Why are you hiding in this room? What did I tell you? I told you guys this and you still didn't believe. Because remember, they were all in disbelief about the resurrection. They had all deserted Jesus just days before when he was crucified, and now they're most likely gathered in this room out of fear of their lives, thinking that they're enemies of the state. 
And so as much as they inwardly may have wanted to see Jesus alive, because of their last and latest interactions with him, particularly their abandoning him, the sight of him might have been a little dreadful, a little awkward. He's alive. Great. Oh, he's alive. Like, I abandoned him. I left him. But rather than words of judgment, rather than words of fear, rather than words of condemnation or terror, Jesus brings them a word of peace. Again, they don't deserve this. They don't deserve this at all. And this leads me to my next point about this peace that Jesus now extends to his disciples. It's not simply an undeserved greeting, but it communicates something about a saving peace that serves as an indicator of their relationship. See, all throughout Luke's gospel, whenever, Jesus, whenever Luke uses the word peace as he's talking about Jesus or the disciples or wherever he uses this word peace, it's indicative of the salvation that will ultimately be accomplished through Jesus. The angels, they proclaim this peace at his birth. Jesus, he comforts the sick people that he heals with this word of peace. This word peace or shalom, it points to the favor of his father that brings well-being to his people. It's the peace that ushers God's kingdom into this world. So in this moment, if the disciples had any question concerning what their status was before God or what kind of ground that they were on with Jesus, Jesus' words to them in this moment would have answered this. It would have cleared that up. See, although they had been distanced from Christ and even deserted him, these words from the resurrected Jesus standing among them, it showed them that he was not against them, but he was for them. And listen, he is for us. Because even when we reject God and his requirements of us, and even when we contribute to the sin that put Jesus on the cross, we turned our backs on him to pursue satisfaction and, and sovereignty in what we wanted. Jesus brings peace. He brings peace to both to sinners who rejected him and to disciples who had deserted him and distanced themselves from him. And he doesn't just bring peace to them, as Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says, that he has made himself our peace. He now stands in between us and God the Father, the wrath and the judgment from God the Father, and he bears that wrath and judgment and gives us life and joy and acceptance with God, making reconciliation. Ephesians says that he has made himself our peace in his body, in his body that was broken, crushed. He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility that existed between us and God, and he preached peace to you who were far off, and to those who were near. So listen today, maybe you're here and you feel this feeling of like you're far off. As though if Jesus himself appeared in this room right now, that he wouldn't have words of peace for you. He might have all kinds of other kind of things to say to you about your sin or about your, your fear, your failures, your worries, or even your deserting him. Maybe you feel a, a hostility from God because of your inability or just even unwillingness to keep his requirements. Maybe you've been suffering. And you don't feel the peace of God. You feel that your suffering is, is too far out of reach for any kind of peace, that your problems are too great for God to solve. 
Well, that God has finished. He's done with extending any kind of peace to you because of your failures, because of your sin. Maybe you believe that God has never extended any type of peace or grace to you. Listen, if if that's you, if that's what you're feeling in this moment, in your life, listen to these words from Jesus. Listen to this. It's not just a greeting. It's an indicator of what he brings as our Savior. Because of his resurrection, because Jesus lives and stands among you, he welcomes you in peace. If you trust in his sacrificial death for you and his victorious resurrection from the dead for you, then peace has been accomplished for you. And now God is for you. Peace is extended to you wherever you are, no matter how far off or how near you may be. It's as Romans chapter 4, verse 25 and 5, 1 says that Jesus was raised up. He was made alive, resurrected for our justification, for our being made right with God, for our being accepted by God. And since, therefore, we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's the resurrection that gives us this saving peace. It gives us acceptance and reconciliation with God through our ever-living mediator, Jesus. So today, do you need peace? When it comes to your soul, are you, like these disciples, laying low in fear, in guilt, believing that the separation between you and God is irreparable, that you somehow find yourself unredeemable? Have you locked yourself away in a room of your heart trying to figure out what's next for me? How am I going to end this war with sin? How am I going to end this war with acceptance, with dissatisfaction? Maybe you need peace in your relationships. Peace because you've been sinned against. Peace because you've been hurt or betrayed or abused. Maybe you need peace because you keep failing to meet your own expectations because you keep failing to meet the expectations of others. Or keep peace because you just look at the world around you, affected by sin, and all you can see and feel is the turmoil from its effects. Do you need peace? Because if so, peace is only found in him. You might want everyone else to be for you and might be working so that everyone else, including yourself, is for you. But none of it matters unless God is for you. And the way that we know that God is for us and has extended peace to us is through the resurrected Jesus. He's alive and he stands among us today. And because of the resurrection, God is for you. He extends peace because he has defeated all opposition. He's conquered the great enemy of your soul that tells you that laying low is the best option instead of going to God. So listen, you don't have to hide. You don't have to run. You can put down the weapons of your efforts that you've used to fight for acceptance and fight for satisfaction. You can stop believing the lies that God's only response to you is condemnation and guilt. God the Father, through the finished work of Jesus, in raising him from the dead, now extends peace to you. If you want peace, 
you need to look, not look any, pa- any further past the resurrected body of Jesus as he's seated in heavenly places with God, interceding before, for us. So verses 37 through 43, we see that the resurrection gives us a saving peace. And this peace that we have is directly connected to God's presence. In the Old Testament, when the people of God experienced times of peace, freedom from wars, anxieties, and calamities, it was because the face of God was turned towards them and the presence of God was with them. And so in these verses, although Jesus comes in peace to the disciples, their response isn't necessarily mutual. In verses 37 through 43, we see their response. We see the response to the resurrection, and it's very similar to the way that you and I respond to things like this. What did they do? Verse 37 says that they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit or a ghost. See, what they did here is they treated the resurrection of Jesus. They treated the resurrected Jesus like an apparition. Here he is showing up powerfully among them, and they minimize it. To them, Jesus was only real in form and appearance, but he was surreal in nature. And therefore, his resurrection had no actual impact upon their current reality. Sure, they were, they were all present and gathered there remembering Jesus, thinking about him, wondering what was going to be next for them. But once they actually saw him resurrected, it wasn't real to them. It was just an apparition. It was just, it was just a ghost. It didn't translate into any real action or response. They just became afraid and doubted. And all too often, if we're honest, we're the same way. We give attention to the resurrection and celebrate it. We celebrate Jesus gathering together in churches on Sundays, singing about it, rejoicing in it, viewing it as the cornerstone of our faith, rightly so. But at times, it remains nothing more than an apparition concerning its impact upon our present lives. We, we, this is because we fear that Jesus isn't really with us in our fight against sin and suffering. We doubt God's promises and his purposes for us. We don't go to him with our needs. This shows up in our lack of prayer. It shows up in our, in our fighting and our lack for joy. Again, like the disciples, all too often we lock ourselves in the way, away in the room of our own problems and sins and fears, and, and we don't let anybody in. That door was locked. If Jesus had knocked on it, they weren't letting anybody in there. He appears. With our mouths, we acknowledge that, that Jesus is alive, yes, but functionally, functionally, maybe not with our mouths, do we, do we act like he's, he's dead? Or even less, maybe just acting like he's distanced from us. That sure, he's up there in heaven. He's ascended. I'm down here with my stuff, with my problems. He doesn't see me. I'll get heaven at the end, but nothing's actually happening now. See, the resurrection, too often it defines us as Christians, but it doesn't always transform us in how we live. And so moving on, notice how Jesus' words of peace, they transition into strengthening them with his presence. And just look at the disciples' reaction here. You see this gradual reaction. They go from startled and frightened, troubled and doubting, to this joyful disbelief and marveling. It's, It's getting a little bit better. And this essentially meant that they thought this was just too real or too good to be true. 
And so this gradual change in emotion, it displays that the presence of Jesus was now strengthening them in this moment. And the peace that Jesus spoke of wasn't some kind of post-death message from a ghost or some type of paranormal activity. This was a genuine encouragement from their Savior and their friend who was very much so alive. So Jesus appears to his disciples in this way, showing them that it's, it's actually him in the flesh in order to strengthen them. He's with them in the realest way. And not only is he alive, but he is all powerfully alive and all powerfully present. His words communicate that he is for them, and now his presence demonstrates and displays to them that he is with them. And his showing them his hands and his feet is proof of that. See, this was more than just a, a, a checking to, to see whether or not he's this two-dimensional figure. He doesn't just say, see and touch my hands and my feet, just so they can, they can just see that he's real and not some apparition. Yeah, sure, it's, it might be for that in some way. But even more than that, his hands and his feet would have been proof that he was a dead man. See, you don't see these types of, types of scars. You don't see these types of wounds on people walking around alive. I often think of the, the House of Representatives, um, uh, representative from Arizona, uh, Gabby Giffords. And when someone came up to her and, and put a gun to her forehead, point blank, she didn't die. But yet she still bears the scars of that gunshot wound to her head. You don't see people walking around with those types of wounds. And what Jesus is showing them here is that normally the scars of punishment and death have become proof of victory. They become proof of his bearing their punishment and death. And he wants them to see these scars. He wants them to see his hands and his feet. And so listen, if we're looking to see that God is victorious over our death and over our sin. If we're looking to see that God is for us, we don't need to look past the wounded hands and feet of the resurrected Jesus. Yes, look to his lifeless, pierced hands and feet on the cross to see the punishment that he bears for you. But even more, look to the, his active and living hands, his hands that move, that touch his disciples, that hug them, that comfort them. Look to these hands that are alive. Look to these hands of the resurrected Jesus to see the forgiveness and life that he purchases for you. You ever heard of the phrase, show me the receipts? All it means is that if you're, if you're holding someone accountable, if you're looking for something where you need proof that something occurred, then here's the evidence. And this is what Jesus is saying in this moment. Here it is. The resurrected and living body of Jesus as he appears to his disciples is all the receipts that you and I need to know that not only is God for us, but that he is with us. Not only has he taken the punishment for our sin, but he has forgiven us of it and freed us from sin's power. What's more than this is that Jesus himself his resurrected body as he is standing there is the very and only receipt that death itself will not destroy us and that we will live with God forever in fullness of joy and peace with an indestructible body like Jesus's. Jesus is the receipt of that. So why is Jesus appearing to them in this way? Why has he decided to show himself to them this way? To sort of come down on their level 
I mean, couldn't they just believe what he had already told them, what seems like a million times before, that the Son of Man was going to be crucified, killed, handed over to the Romans, and he'd rise the third day? Why couldn't they just be good with that? Why wasn't that enough? Because he's doing all of this out of grace and compassion for his disciples, to comfort them, to empower them, to strengthen them in their doubt and their weakness. This isn't an I told you so moment for Jesus or an opportunity to condemn them. No, he's coming to them and meeting them in their struggle. He's empathizing with their weaknesses, as Hebrew says, as a high priest does. And yes, although Jesus prioritizes faith and the importance of believing all throughout his ministry, he doesn't leave his disciples to just pull themselves up by their own belief without any assurance. No, he now appeals to their reason and to their senses in his appearing to them in this way. And it's this that significantly contributes to the strengthening of their faith in him. So listen, as much as people often try to do and, and, try, to, uh, and try to pit them against each other, reason and faith, they're not enemies. They work together, as, they, as we see here in this passage, in order to give us, God's people, a steadfast hope, a confidence in what God has done in the person and work of Jesus and resurrecting him from death. See, if Jesus is never raised and if he never appears to his disciples or to the two men on the road to Emmaus or to Mary or the women at the tomb or to the 500 other people he's going to appear to in the coming days, if he just leaves it up to their, to their own well-wishing without giving them any assurance, then the resurrection would be nothing more than a myth or a story. And they would. We would, all of us, we would be, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the most pitiable and miserable people ever. And that's because we'd be trusting in something nobody has any receipts for. But Jesus has given us assurance. He has shown himself resurrected to these women, to his disciples, to his followers. He has given us eyewitness testimony confirmation that he is alive, that he was raised from death. So maybe you're here today and you aren't quite sure what to make of the resurrection. Maybe you're one of those visitors who didn't just disappear after Easter, but you decided to stick around. We're glad that you did. But maybe you're still doubting or wrestling with the resurrection. Maybe it's, maybe it's real. You say, maybe it's not. And you just conclude that it's safer for you just to, to not put yourself out there when it comes to believing in Jesus then maybe it's better for you to stand on the side of your own reasoning and your own senses. Because after all, you can, it's not like you can see Jesus in front of you. Listen, Christianity, it doesn't ask you to take a leap into the dark. It doesn't require you to walk off the ledge of reason with no sign of any evidence. No, there is strong evidence that Jesus is alive. And this evidence, it serves as the ground of our hope, the ground of our faith. It gives us confidence that God has loved us, that God has forgiven us, and will also give us the same resurrected life to everyone who believes in Jesus. What is this evidence? His actual resurrection, his historical and actual presence among eyewitnesses and his followers that is recorded here in God's word, the Bible. Consider this. Think about this. Read it as you would like a newspaper. Consider the sources. They're verified. The receipts are there. You can trust in this Jesus who is alive, and you will not be put to shame.
So just as the presence of Jesus strengthened his disciples and gives us an eternal hope, it also strengthens us in our daily lives. Jesus doesn't simply show himself resurrected to his followers, ascend to heaven and just leave us down here with that. See, the resurrection shows us that not only is is Jesus for us and with us, but the Bible actually tells us that he now lives within us as well. And this is a reality seen all throughout the New Testament when authors like Paul uh, state things like this, that if Christ is in you, then your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Or in Colossians 1.27 where it says, Christ is in you, and, and that is the hope of glory. Or even when Paul is referring to himself in his testimony, when he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Even further, we could say the reverse is true as well. That if we place our faith in this resurrected and risen Jesus who died in our place for our sins, then we can be said to be in Christ. We are in him. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away. Look, all things are becoming new. Scripture that I think we looked at previously, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. And Colossians 3, 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ lives within us, but we are also in him. See, this isn't metaphoric, but rather it means that through his resurrection, we now have a, we have a union with Jesus. We have a union with him that strengthens us with his presence as he stands both before God interceding for us and also as he lives within us, leading us, transforming us, and keeping us in step with God's purposes. If you just flip one book over, you see all throughout John's gospel, towards the end of his life, Jesus uses this language of abiding in his people, living with them, living with them and dwelling with them if they obey and they keep his commandments, his words. See, this is the promise of his presence. And it's God's presence in Jesus that strengthens us. Even more than that, Jesus also speaks in in John's gospel of sending God's spirit into to live in those who believe in him. And God's spirit lives within us, lives within all those who trust in the finished work of Jesus to comfort us, to give us this peace that Jesus brings, to give us this presence, to help us know that we have access to this grace in which we now stand, to comfort us, to teach us, to point us to and remember the words and the works of Jesus. So listen, although we don't see the resurrected Jesus physically today among us, for those who trust in him, Christ lives within us. And therefore, we can know that he's truly with us, extending to us peace and grace and forgiveness and love and and even correction. Because he's with us, caring for us, nurturing us. He's with us and helping us with our sin, with our suffering, our failures, our fears, our relationships. And this is why we need to know about God's presence with us and within us through the resurrection. 
it's ultimately because we're so prone to feel alone in our weakness. We're so prone to, to think we are completely by ourselves in our sufferings and in our fight against sin. And again, it's true, left to ourselves, we're the disciples all over again. We're isolated, we're hiding, we're doubting. In my own life, I know I see this all the time, that when I'm losing the battle against sin, when I'm unable to endure whatever sufferings that I face, the first question I ask is, isn't why, God, why am I going through these things, but where? Where are you? Don't the Psalms give us this feeling all the time? Don't the psalmist cry out all throughout the Psalms, where are you, Lord? Listen, I understand the why. I understand why you're doing these things. I understand that you're good. I understand that you're working for your good purposes and my joy, but I don't feel good right now. Where is this comfort? Where is this peace? Why am I suffering? Where are you in this suffering? And like many like me, many of you might share in the same experiences, wondering, asking the same question. But because of the resurrected Jesus who stands among these disciples, who's alive and is seated at God's right hand today, Jesus is with us because he lives in us and also because he intercedes before God the Father. Listen, as we sang earlier, when Jesus intercedes for us, he prays for us. He pleads our case before God. Again, as a high priest, he empathizes with us. And even more than that, because he lives in us, he, again, he, he's a high priest that sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. He comforts us. He teaches us. So listen, today, what would look different in your life if you truly believe that God is both for you and with you in this way? What would look different for you? Would you be given to more prayer? Maybe quicker to confess your sin? Maybe having contentment in trials, in suffering? Maybe it just means that you just fall towards God instead of falling away from him in these moments. There's probably a million different ways that things would be different for us. But the overall point of the passage is this, that Jesus is for us. He is with us. He is within us even when we fail at realizing it. These disciples, again, they don't deserve this peace. They don't deserve this presence. But here comes Jesus standing among them alive. He encourages them. He equips them. He strengthens them. If I had one last point to make, it was going to be this. It was going to be on the power that the resurrection gives, the peace, the presence, but also the power. And I'd go all the way through verse 49, showing how Jesus displays power in opening the disciples' eyes and, and understanding and seeing his work all throughout the scriptures, and, and also how Jesus empowers us through God's spirit and sends us out to be witnesses in the world of, of what he has done in his perfect work and make disciples of all nations, preaching repentance, preaching faith and trust in Christ. And the reason that I mention this sort of third point is, uh, is because it's important to know that it's God's word and God's spirit that will continuously remind us of this peace and this presence that we have. God's word and his spirit work together to remind us that you and I, we have peace with Christ. We have peace with God. 
His wrath is removed. We can go to him. And we can know that he is with us. So lastly, the next thing that Jesus does with his disciples in this moment is is both a product of his peace to them and his presence with them. He communes with them by eating eating with them. In verse 42, it says that Jesus eats, eats a piece of broiled fish among them, something that he had done with them many times before. And so now he does this here to prove that he's really, uh, he's, not, he's not a ghost. But he eats with them to, to, to show that he's having continued fellowship with them. And no, he doesn't need food to live anymore. He has this resurrected body. But it's like how my brother used to do when I got my first apartment. He sort of shows up in the room and goes straight to the fridge. <laughs> What's up, guys? What you got to eat? He's not really hungry. He just wants to know what you got to eat. This, this is fellowship. This is communion that the disciples and Jesus are sharing in this moment. And this is grounded in the resurrection. Ghosts can't go and open the fridge. Ghosts can't eat your fish and take your groceries. This is because of the resurrection. And because Jesus has been raised, this peace has been achieved for them. God's presence is with them so that they might enjoy fellowship with him so that you and I might enjoy fellowship with God. This is why Christ has been resurrected. This is perhaps the greatest implication. In fellowship with him, not just forever when, once we die, but, but now, in this moment. And Jesus eating this fish, it'll one day, it will point to the one day where he will sit down and enjoy fellowship with us in the realest and sweetest sense. It's what the Bible in the book of Revelation calls the marriage supper of the Lamb, a great banquet where we will eat with real bodies, with real joy, with sweetness that is far beyond anything we can imagine here. But we have a glimpse of this through seeing the resurrected Jesus and experiencing the fellowship that he desires to give us through his resurrection. But until then, we continue to enjoy this fellowship, this communion with God that has been achieved for us through the resurrection. We enjoy it through prayer, through hearing God's word, and through meeting together and encouraging one another. But we also enjoy this fellowship with God through remembering what he's accomplished for us. And and one of the ways that we do that is through another meal. And so at this time, we'll transition and continuing to reflect on the finished work of Jesus that he has accomplished for us. And how he's given us God's presence that is with us. And we reflect on that through another meal, a meal that represents his broken body, broken on the cross for our sin, taking our place in our punishment, and his blood shed, which gave us forgiveness, which gave us peace, which gave us reconciliation with God, shed for you. Today, if that is your hope, if you trust in that, we want to extend this, this peace, extend this peace to you to be refreshed, to be reminded of what Christ has accomplished for you. And so that you can know in taking this that God is with you. That Christ stands before the Father interceding before you, but he's also living within you to guide you, to remind you of his forgiveness and his grace towards you, to keep you as a shepherd keeps his sheep. But today if you're in here and you're still wrestling with whether or not this is even true for you, and if so, how? I would encourage you to remain at your seat during this time. 
I want you to see that the peace that Jesus offers to his people who don't have it all together, who are failing, who are weak, who has shown himself powerful among them in his resurrection. See that. And if you like to take a moment, you can bow your head and you can pray. And if you decide to say in that moment that, listen, I want that. I want to know this peace. I want to know that God is with me because I feel so alone. I need forgiveness of the things that I've done for my sin. I encourage you to remain at your seat during this time, but tell somebody around you. Tell one of the people who are coming and going to their seats. So let's take a moment of reflection, and then we'll come forward and take communion together. You've been listening to a message by Rayshawn Graves, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.